Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. A highlight of 2020 was the publication of How to Be Happy Though Human, a collection of new and previous work by virtuoso poet Kate Camp, published in New Zealand, the United States and Canada. Admired by Poet Laureate Dave Eggleton for its smouldering slow burn, curdled idealism, the Salvation Army Assembly of Humorous Perceptions, it ranges across eclectic subject matter like a bumper ride in a fairground, crashing into obstacles at once jarring and exhilarating. Rye and Deadpan, Camp's collected works exhibit all of the technical control, musicality and close observational skills for which he has become internationally renowned. In conversation with poet Bill Manhire, she shares the influences and preoccupations that charge her creativity and reads from her work. This session is supported by Platinum patrons Mary and Peter Biggs. We hope you enjoy it. Well, kia ora tato. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to this session with Kate Camp, which is called Humans Being Happy, which is a cunning allusion to the book we're celebrating, which is called How to Be Happy though human, which has a slightly different vibe to it. Uh, <clears throat> can I say uh, that you definitely deserve to be happy if you've turned your cell phones off and if you've scanned in? Uh, and I've also, <laughs> I've also been asked to tell you that you should, you should feel entirely comfortable about wearing a face mask if you want to, and also it's fine to leave early if you feel unwell. Uh, I want to acknowledge and thank Mary and Peter Biggs who support the festival as platinum patrons and this session in particular. Mary and Peter do a huge amount, in fact, for New Zealand poetry. They not only support it financially, they read it uh, and they buy the books. Uh, they walk the talk. Uh, they've never been a failure at onomatopoeia. Uh, they step outside their mansion and they really do the scansion. They're Mary and they're Peter, and they dig poetic meter, <laughs> and so on. I'll abandon that poem at that point. <clears throat> but it's really great to have their support because poetry, as I imagine everyone in this room knows, is often invisible, and COVID has made a lot of poetry books much more invisible than usual over the last year. A couple that come to mind for me are selected volumes by James Brown, and Bernadette Hall, great books of poets, mid, well, mid to late career, uh, but, you know, fantastic books which have just sort of got lost somehow because of mm -hmm. COVID. Uh, Kate Camp's How to Be Happy Though Human is also a selected poems with new poems attached. And in a way, it's suffered an even sadder fate because as those of you who race off to buy it at the end of this session will discover, it's a joint publication between Victoria University Press and a Canadian publisher. And I think were it not for COVID, uh, you would have been launching it in Canada last year and going to all terrifically exciting, hot Canadian Skiing festival. and Whistler or whatever, I don't know. I've never <laughs> been to Canada. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I used to make a feeble joke about Kate Camp uh, by calling her the May West of New Zealand poetry. And I, I don't think she ever roared with laughter when I said that. <laughs> but I was trying to point to the way in which she could write poems that had a, 
deadpan, offhand quality to them, a sort of out-of-the-side-of-the-mouth, laconic flavour. She could do aphorisms and wisecracks on the page, which is much harder to do than you would think. But indeed, it was a pretty reductive joke, and it got more and more reductive after the first couple of books. Uh, as Kate went on, somehow deepening, enlarging, broadening, uh, enriching the kinds of poetry she wrote uh, and what she let into the poems. Uh, and I hope we'll touch on that process today. And not only by concentrating on the poetry, because Kate, uh, as some of you might know, is currently committing memoir. Uh, so there is a part-written memoir in the room. Uh, and the rough plan is that Kate will read us some poems to start with, and then we'll talk but there will be interspersed readings from the memoir and from a famous, world famous, at least in Wellington, diary that Kate kept when I think she was 14. Uh, <laughs> and I plan for us to have some time for questions at the end, uh, but I also hope to stop the questions and we'll finish with a poem. So that's all that. Please welcome Kate Camp. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Bill. I, um, I thought I'd start off by reading a very early poem of mine. So, I don't know, I probably wrote this sometime in the early 90s when I was a student, and um, Bill was one of my lecturers then in English, doing American literature, maybe second year, a second year paper. And I'd applied to do the creative writing course that was, um, even in those days, pretty pretty famous, and um, the year that I'd applied to do it, 1995, the year I applied for, um, Bill wasn't going to be running the course, you were away, were you in France? You were, you were somewhere. I was in America. Oh, you are in America? Finding out about graduate creative writing programs, yeah. And before, yeah. so to expand your empire. Um, <laughs> and so Damien Wilkins was going to be running the creative writing course that year, and I was working at the, um, the old museum at the Queen's Pictures exhibition and Bill came through the, the exhibition, and as he was leaving, I was on my security detail at the door. He said, oh, I liked your um, poems that you sent in for your submission for the course. And I went, oh, oh I didn't think you'd be reading the submissions, because Damon's running the course. And Bill said, oh, no, but he read a couple of them out to me over the phone. And I was like, holy shit, this is like... <laughs> my life has peaked, you know, this is just... Whatever happens from now, life is good. So um, may, maybe this was, this was one of them, because this was a poem that I put in my, um, in my portfolio when I applied for the course. In your absence. In your absence, I stubbed out my arm, parceled myself off to various chaps. I put the dog's head in a bucket, and she barked my shin. I put my head down, received brief papery epiphanies. Enjoying a thermos of tea in the Australian garden, I thought, this is very fine, and no one is coming to rescue me. Um, I thought I'd read a poem um, in celebration of Tussiata's win in the, in the awards. Um, Tussiata is one of a group of poets I'm in a writing group with and we've been in a group for like 
19 years or 17 years, something like that. Anyway, a crazy amount of time. Um, so I'm very thrilled that she, that she had the win. Um, panic button. Tusiata tells me that the Bedouin hardly drink any water. They bury onions in the desert, she says, though I'm not sure if the two are connected. So many things can go wrong inside a human life. It's almost comical. You find yourself in a house in a night with everyone you love breathing in and out somewhere. And if you thought about it properly, you'd just throw up in terror. Instead, I have this button in my pocket, not like a panic button, just a button that's come loose. And it fits into the curve of my thumb and finger as I turn it over and over. I keep it in my pocket like you keep a pebble in your mouth in the desert to make saliva flow. Now, Bill asked me to read this next poem, um, The Village, which is a poem I haven't, I haven't read this for ages. Um, is there anything you wanted to say before I read it? Or just <laughs> no, though I know the place you're talking about, because yeah. it's not really a village, is it? <laughs> yeah. The Village. I live in a block called The Village. We are without a blacksmith, but not without caring. Some evenings ago, a window shattered and seven doors of a possible 69 opened to be seven times concerned if helpless in our dressing gowns. So when yesternight, as I listened to positive thoughts on a tape and willed my spine to a line, I heard a man shout, you're breaking my fucking heart, I knew I'd not be alone in caring. From up here, he was a baseball cap with feet. She was invisible, her vocal cords tearing, her voice a child's first attempts to play the recorder. Just fuck off, she told him, and as if in some Elizabethan play, he mirrored her. No, you fuck off, he said. By this time, silhouettes had gathered on balconies across the way. Lights were popping on like cardboard windows on an advent calendar. You don't know what you're losing, he yelled from beside a roadside fig tree. You don't know what you're fucking losing. And then, silence. A few minutes later, I heard his footsteps knew his gait by now, as one might know the shape of a man once loved and never forgiven. Quietly, I heard a soft knock, a key turn, a door breathe open and gently close. They are there together now, somewhere muffled in the concrete stomach of the village, curled in their disastrous nest, perhaps stabbing one another to death, or having sex, or smoking fat, greasy joints in front of the telly, exhausted and broken and hanging together. I have a new summer blanket of pale lime green. 
I relax the muscles around my eyes and visualize my vertebrae in perfect alignment. I am all alone up here and safe, oh safe, and I will never take their place. Uh, this is a trip to Auckland. The air was warm and dark, warmer and darker. By the carousel we waited. We were touching, and it seemed I leaned on you, though perhaps you leaned too against me. Anyway, it was good. Men in shining jackets stood on the motorway by orange lights. They barred our way, then showed the bright green sign that said, Go. Go, I thought. Go. It was like a foreign language. Everything was new to me. I knew nothing of roads and streets. The house was light and moved when we did. With my arm above my head as I lay, I might have been a ballerina, bent over in a music box. Outside, insects or maybe frogs were making the noise of phone calls. Vertical blinds drifted like bars being moved for a great escape. When you slapped a mosquito against the wall, you shook the place. Before dawn, the neighbour left in his truck. You said he was heading to Cape Reinga and I tried to imagine what he would take there in a truck, what he would deliver. When morning came, it was clean and seemed to arrive not from the normal place that days come from. It was extraordinary, and so we went into it, stepped out to join that ocean of traffic. We never got to go ice skating though there was a rink you had told me about where I would need to wear long trousers and not fall over. I imagined us as in a film, flying down some frozen river. When I boarded the flight, I was starving. Like a prisoner, I waited for food. And when it came, the knife and fork and spoon were freezing. thought after I read The Village, I wanted to read uh, something more romantic. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the title poem of this, um, of this collection, How to Be Happy Though Human. Um, and all I want to say about it is that the um, word mourning that appears towards the end of the poem is mourning, mourning with a U. How to be happy, though human. From the circle, there was a man we couldn't see, just his fingers held out for emphasis, like the hands of a preacher or a primary school teacher. Before that, we'd been at the film where three people taxidermied a baby zebra, caught in the moment of standing for the first time. 
I go back to the wings of the stage of my school's assembly hall. Smell of dust and afternoons. We are hiding from folk dancing, which we love. And I go back to Saturday. We dance with other people, other people's children, create community with physics. Memory is a kind of mourning. We take each other's hands as if they were made for that, and we form a circle. I'll mm -hmm. stop there. <clears throat> oh, that's a lovely poem. Uh, and it is about being happy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, whereas, what, what did you think of the village since I made you bump into it again? Did, did you find it very bleak or...? Yes, I think it's... I, yeah, I do think it's quite bleak. And I mean, I think there's a... There's always been an anger in my poetry right from the early days. Um, and sometimes I know what that's about, sometimes I don't, but... Yeah, there's always been, I feel like, a strands of anger and despair in my work from the early days, which, you know, the, which, the, which is often a, I, I think it's a side of my work that I'm less um, resistant to now, and I feel less need to sort of compensate for and dance around than maybe, than maybe I used to. Mm. Well, one of the things, I mean, I, I like it partly because it's a storytelling poem, mm. and you can do very good storytelling poems, which makes me feel optimistic about the memoir, because mm. that will have storytelling. But I think I liked in it, or like in it, I should say, is, is the fact that it's very funny, mm. you know. Uh, there's something very comic about that desperate couple, mm. uh, out of some terrible sitcom or something. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet somehow they've got a positive thing at the end of the poem, and you, who have been amused by them, observant, thoughtful, mm. you're alone. Or, mm. or the person speaking in the mm. poem who is a version of you. Mm. And I quite like that mix of the comic and the, and the slightly sad. Mm. And I think as well there's that, you know, the, uh, I mean, having had, you know, bad boyfriends and violent boyfriends in the past, there's a sense for me in that poem of the, the speaker of the poem is kind of, is is both a member of that couple and outside it, you know. So, so it's you know they could kind of the, the speaker could could be shape shifting between playing the different roles. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the fantastic thing you did the other evening at the gala opening had even even more than that. Uh, mm. That that extraordinary mix of of personal pain mm. uh, and comedy mm. and neither was disrespected by mm. the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's something that people have often said to me, even, you know, not just apropos of the storytelling, but in relation to poems, oh, just sort of, don't you feel like you're invading your own privacy, or it must be very difficult to write about things that are so personal if there's times that I, that I have done that. And, I mean, in some ways, yes, that's true, but for me... Um, Probably the the artist the, the artist in me is probably the is probably the most central part of me the artist's ego. So if I have turned something into what I consider to be a good piece of writing, 
then nothing on earth is going to stop me from sharing it, you know. And that to me is like a really cathartic process, the process of writing it and, you know, dis often discovering that there's some deep, profound emotion in something which I didn't think was there, you know. And, and so I just start writing something that I think is about, you know, something I've heard on the radio or, or whatever, and I discover the emotion that's within it. But for me, by the time I've then finished creating the finished work, it's no longer like a raw that would be like the clay, but once it's been fired in the kiln, then it's just, I just feel powerful in relation to it. I don't feel vulnerable, yeah. you know. And yet you have a very sort of <coughs> pragmatic, I don't know if that's the word, uh, way of going about writing poetry. Mm. You, am I right that you have yeah. a morning every week that you yeah. own for... Yeah. Wednesday poem? morning. <laughs> Wednesday mornings? I'm a Wednesday morning poet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when did you start doing that, and, and does it work for you? I mean, it does. It was probably 15-odd years ago, yeah. yeah, and I just, because I was working full-time, I'd got off my first sort of serious job, and um, I knew I wanted to have some time to do writing, and I can't remember now, but there was some reason in that workplace that Wednesday, that the Wednesday morning was a morning, and so I just negotiated to say I'd like to work four and a half days a week. Um, and then I've just kept that. Every job I've been offered since then, I always wait till they're offering me the job and I say, oh, just one little thing. I, I don't work on Wednesday mornings, you know, just start at midday on a I'm Wednesday, a you know, because yeah. that's my poetry morning. Yeah. And, um, I mean, now I'm at Te Papa, people don't think that's so woo-woo because there's lots of creative people there. But, you know, when I was head of comms at the Ministry of Economic Development, that was quite unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you set out then each Wednesday morning to write a poem? Or well, do you no, because. Poem that's left over from well, as you last know, Wednesday like any. It, the worst thing you can do is admit to yourself that you're trying to write a poem, right. <laughs> and the poems scurry into the corners of the room. No, I mean, I sit down and read poetry for an hour, and then I go to my desk and I bring out my book, which has got little, if I've had an idea and I've written it down on a piece of paper, something that sparked my interest during the week, I sit down and I just flick through the book and until something sort of sets off a little fuzzy sound and then I just start writing from there or maybe if I'm really struggling I might use an exercise from you know Poetry Foundation or mm. Mutes and Earthquakes um, yeah and I just but but I always try to not let myself know that I'm trying to write a poem <laughs> even after all these years yeah. and then is there some point at which you know that it, the poem is okay, like three weeks later or immediately? Or? No, it's always like a really contained process because I have writing group on Wednesday night, so we meet oh. by video conference. So me, Tosiata, Hanimwana, Marty, Steph and Mariah will have our 8pm Facebook video call. Not It doesn't happen every week. Quorum, quorum, but when we've got a quorum, then um, so that would be my ideal and usual process would have been I've written something in the morning and then I'll read it at the workshop that night and, you know, we use the Iowa process where I'll read the poem, they will talk about it, I won't say anything, I'll make notes of what they're saying and, and then I might change some things after that. But usually that's, that's it, it's kind of all done. So... The others are bringing work to the same event, yeah. but presumably not that yeah. they've written that morning. Or Yeah, well, maybe, but sometimes they have, and sometimes it might be like, you know, I mean, Steph's amazing. You get an email from her being like, oh, shit, 
oh, I didn't have time to write anything, you know, mother of two. And then she'll be like, oh, I'm, oh, here's something I did in my tea break this afternoon. And she'll send through some <laughs> amazing poem, you know. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, but that's good. And then if you haven't got, if you haven't brought a poem, you haven't been writing, go to, you know, you have writing group and someone reads something amazing. You're like, shit, damn it, I want to write a good poem. So it's a real yeah. motivator, you know. Yeah, yeah. So presumably this all spills out from creative writing workshops years ago? I mean, yeah, yeah, when yeah. we did the course, um, the Iowa, you know, we, the, I am, uh, we did the Iowa Summer Workshop together yeah. in 2003, and that's yeah. how we met. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that Mariah uh, did the launch speech for this book. Yeah, uh, amazing speech. Yeah, and in the course of it, she used the word spiritual a lot mm. about you and your work. Mm. And yet, you know, the introduction to this book by the Canadian poet mm. uh, quotes you saying somewhere, well, of course, I'm an atheist mm. and so on. And uh, what do you think about those two takes on your work, shall we say? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a poem, I can't remember if it's in this book or, or not, um, uh, that was based on a writing exercise. It was based on a poem by, I never know how to say, Chislaw Milosh, but you know who I mean. Um, and, and it's kind of a poem, I'm just trying to see if I can find it now. It's kind of a poem that's angry at God for not existing, you know, that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of, the, general, that's sort of the general vibe, and I guess I, I feel that, um, that way a little bit. But, yeah, I think for me the... The, I, I know you don't love the poem Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold the way I do, um, but you know I, ha I have an obsession with that poem, and I think it's partly because it's a poem about you know how God doesn't exist, so kind of what's the point? And I think what it settles on is you know Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean. It sort of settles on you know the literary, this how the tradition of literature, and then the relationship you have with an individual who you're in bed with, and then the smell of the night air at the window, that's the kind of triumvirate of what you've got instead, you know? You've kind of got, if there's no, if, if, if there's no God, what you've got is your physical lived experience and the joy of being in the moment with that nighttime air and the tide washing on the beach. That person, you know, he wrote it on his honeymoon, that person who's lying in bed while you're at the window, and then that sense of continuity of human human experience and for me those are the kind of poles of the whatever the spirituality it's kind of a meaning making isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. did did you have sunday school or church or anything no like that no mum and dad are both atheists as well so right. yeah. yeah but i did really get into reading the bible as a kid like i think um i always liked to you know show off that i was once i became a reader you know how what a precocious reader i was and dad always likes to tell the story of like when i was seven and him knocking on the toilet door and me saying go away i'm reading the old testament <laughs> 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 i mean i probably wasn't i was probably picking the scabs on my knees but you know but i knew enough to know that that was a high status yeah. thing to say and to and and to read i mean i did read it but yeah. you know yeah. but i was also just showing off to myself yeah 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 I, I guess one substitute for that sort of you know possible uh belief stuff that mm. might have been in a, in a childhood is is what was poetry mm. in your case yeah and your mother's a famous english teacher mm. uh and my my understanding is that she sort of fed poems to you without thinking about it. Either. Oh, yeah, constantly. And, I mean, we, you know, she used to come into our room every morning and, you know, 
pull back the curtains and say, awake for morning in the bowl of night has flown the stone that puts the stars to flight, and lo, the hunter of the east has caught the sultan's turret in a noose of light. And we'd be like, oh, shut up, mum. And, then, and she'd always say, you know, before bed, you know, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. So those kind of, you know, the sense of, Poetry is something that you have off by heart and that you have the musicality and as a spoken thing without consciously, that's hugely important to me. And my practice on those Wednesday mornings is to write something and when I feel that I've written, maybe I haven't finished something, but when I feel I've written, I've written to a standstill to some extent, then I will read that aloud. And when I read it aloud, probably, you know, at least half the time I'll just start crying at some point in the, as I'm reading it aloud to myself, you know, my, my voice will sort of, will break and that's, it's not necessarily at a sad point in the poem but it's like, oh, I've, I've found that nerve, you know, that sort right. of, that trigger that was obviously what this poem was kind of getting to and I, I'm not aware of what it is, I don't know what it is but it's only with, I, that would never happen to me reading it on the page. It would only be when I was speaking it aloud that I would suddenly think, oh, oh, okay, this is what, this is where this was going. Yeah. And do you know some poems by heart? Presumably you do. Yeah, right? yeah. As you yeah, and I still learn new ones. You know, I still, I still get into learning new ones. I usually put them, when my eyesight was better, I used to put them in a plastic bag and have them in the shower, but um, <laughs> the print would have to be so huge now. That, uh, That's so, pretty weird, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I am quite weird. Poems <laughs> on a plastic bag <laughs> in the shower. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so, yeah, so I have them up by the jug when I make a cup of tea, I practice them. You know, like I learnt Loris Edmund Camping is a poem I've always loved and loved uh -huh. for years, and I learnt that off by heart. When I was in Montan, I had that on the, on the fridge when I was yeah, there. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. this is just because you want to do it? Really? Yeah, not, yeah. Not because you did English speech lessons or anything? No, like that. I never did any English speech lessons no. or, yeah. yeah. No, I just love learning. I mean, when you learn a poem off by heart, you come to understand it and appreciate it in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, what about your dad? Was he interested in poetry or did he just... With it, as it no, but he's someone who's very interested in words and wordplay, and I think that that was a big part of my my growing up. Was sort of like we had a a next door neighbour called Case, you know, which is quite unusual. And you know, we used to just have hours of entertainment around the dinner table of saying, you know, uh, oh, would you like a piece of fruit and nut case, or you know, I was like. <laughs> Tell me the story, but keep it brief, case. You know, <laughs> and so, and so, Dad was always a great participant in any sort of weird, weird play. And he, both Mum and Dad, would love to sort of say, to subvert sayings. So I, the saying, you know, that the saying in our house was always Bob's your auntie, and I, I never thought anything of it. And as I got older, and I heard people say, you know, you do blah and blah, and Bob's your uncle. I thought, oh, that's a great funny twist on the old saying. <laughs> Because I thought it was Bob's your auntie. <laughs> yeah, or, or, you know, or Dad always likes to say, you know, power corrupts and absolute power is even better. <laughs> <laughs> he was a lawyer, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I reckon maybe we should hear something now. Do you want to do a bit of memoir? Sure. Or, or, or yeah, let's, do, let's do the memoir. I've got, right. I've got a little bit here. 
Are you doing the memoir on a... You wouldn't do that on a Wednesday morning? No, I've taken four months off work and I've just got... I'm back at work on the 1st of June, so I've taken a little uh, sabbatical from from my job, which has been awesome. So, yeah, I started it when I was on the Montom Fellowship and I wrote probably a third, maybe a third of what I wanted to do, close to a third or a half. And, um, yeah, so this is just a little tiny extract um, from a chapter called a packet of Benson and Hedges and a box of matches. The fisherman's table is on the road between Wellington and Waikanae. Stopping there for dinner was one of those treats that might occur on our way to the beach for the weekend. The fisherman's table had a salad bar that was in a boat. You could have as much as you wanted. They always brought slices of white bread and butter to the table as soon as you sat down. There was a small bar attached to the restaurant it was darker than the rest of the place, with an underwater glow. Was there a fish tank in there, with one of those purple lights? That was the feeling of the place. Me and Mary might go there after dinner and have a Shirley Temple, which was red lemonade. Or we might go out and wait in the car, while Mum and Dad stayed in the restaurant for a drink. We'd sit in the front seats, not the back, and we would take cigarette butts from the ashtray, the long ones, Maybe they'd been put out halfway or just burned out through neglect. We'd push in the cigarette lighter, the green ring of its light, wait for it to pop, and then draw it out, the glowing spiral of its metal interior, the only light, and we'd smoke the cigarette butts, or at least light them, seeing for the first time how flecks of tobacco would stick on the surface of the lighter, burning brightly for a second before disappearing. As two sisters in the back seat, there was something very right about driving with mum and dad. It was a metaphor, I guess, for our lives, kids and adults together, but in two separate worlds. They had the radio with those black buttons you'd push for preset stations and the tape player and the view of the road ahead. In the back, we could close our eyes and try to guess where we were by the corners. When you opened your eyes, it sometimes took a second to recognise the familiar street because you'd been so certain you were somewhere else. In the front seat, they had all the power. They knew things about the Bible, the table of elements, things in Time magazine and the bulletin. They could do things that we couldn't. They could drive and smoke and drink. They could lick knives, snap their fingers and whistle. And yet, on some level, we looked down on them. There were many things about their adult world that we utterly disdained. The way they would fold up a small amount of toilet paper neatly instead of bunching up a big handful. <laughs> How they drank black coffee in the heat of summer. The boringness of their lives, with its droning sound of the national program. <coughs> coming from the leather-encased sanyo that mum would even put in the laundry basket and take to the washing line. <laughs> and their smoking. We disdained their smoking, even as we secretly enacted its rituals. <laughs> what, what's the larger structure of the memoir? I mean, clearly this... This sort of happyish childhood. Mm. Uh, are you coming right through to today? Um, oh, I might write a chapter about the session. No. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's sort of, a, I mean, I've never narrative, narrative within a small scale is something I really enjoy, but I, I haven't, it's not an autobiography, you know, right. so it's, um, it's kind of theme, it's kind of a series of, of essays on, on themes. One has already been published, it was, it's just one of those things when I was in France, I decided I should enter the landfall essay competition with one of the things that I've written on the fellowship. And of the things that I'd written, the only chapter that was of a length to be eligible was a chapter called I Wet My Pants, um, which was just an account of every time in my life that I've wet my pants. <laughs> And I was like, well, this is, you know, not, not baptism by fire, but this is, you know, this is a great way to start the whole, you know, self-revelation with, you know, just a first-person account of my humiliation. It's still, you know, even when I open up that landfall now and see, I wet my pants by Kate Camp. It's like, <laughs> so I feel like that was probably a good little vaccination against the yeah, like humiliation. Sort of thing, a, 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 an enemy friend would run yes, on a toilet wall. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's a series of a series of um, essays on on a theme, and a lot of the time, you know, I was talking to you about poems that you might um, read, and you know, your poem is it called 1950s? That poem of yours? Oh, yeah. yeah. And you know, some some of it is really just um, enumerating the things I remember, like all of the things I remember being in my grandparents' house, mm -hmm. and I don't know if anyone else is interested to read it, but I have a drive to. Yeah. capture and record it. Yeah. Mm. You know, you use the word self-revelation, mm. which is one thing, isn't it? And, you know, you're yourself, so mm. you're entitled to reveal yourself. But in a memoir, shall we say this, your mother and your father, mm. and at some point they divorce, mm. uh, and maybe you have to acknowledge that. Mm. And how are you negotiating all that sort of stuff mm. in your head and, and actually might Will you show them stuff? Yeah. I mean, in my head, I negotiate it on the basis that I just don't give a shit about anyone else. I just, because while I'm writing it, I have to, I have to imagine that no one, you know, it's more the sort of violent ex-boyfriends that I sort of think about, you know, as being, you know, would I ever want to publish this, you know, because I wouldn't want that person to come back into my life type of thing. You know, those are the kind of things I... I think about more but but I think while I'm writing it you know I have to just try not to let any of that come into my come into my head but you know Vivian um, Plum has got a wonderful poem that ends you know, I can't remember it exactly but ends along the lines of and I say I have to because I love I love the poem more than I love you <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that that that, that you know I don't want to hurt people through what I'm writing, but I also think, as a writer, that's you have that ego, you have that drive to do that, you know, and that you kind of can't compromise it in a way, you know, you kind of can't do it by committee or, you know, take things out or may, maybe there would just be territories that I wouldn't go into right. rather than that I would change the way I wrote about it. I think that would be more the thing for me, that I perhaps would just choose not to write about a particular thing. But if I'm going to write about it, I don't feel that I want to then sort of sugarcoat it or censor it. Right. So what about your parents' divorce? Will you put that in and will you put yourself in responding to it as a teenage girl? Or? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things um, that, that Teenage Diary, the infamous um, Teenage Diary, that, that 
happened that covers the year that Dad left Mum. So um, I sort of feel like maybe that's another project that particular year and that right. diary, and that I might do do a project on that. So maybe I might leave that for that. Um, but yeah, and I mean, even you know, I did an interview with the Herald the other day where I t where I just told a, a story about remembering seeing my father move out with my uncle and them carrying a dining table out, and I remember looking down from the top of the stairs and saying, you know, you'll always be my dad, and and I was crying. I was a you know. 13 or maybe just turned 14 and I was crying and I was you know genuinely of course really upset but on another level I was also thinking gosh how tragic this tragic girl at the top of the stairs watching her father move oh. out because her parents are divorcing and you know and there's a part of me that thinks what a I'm a fucking sociopath you know it's like <laughs> I, but I sort of now realize that actually we're always and often and really emotionally wrought situations, you often do sort of dissociate and see things from the, from the outside. But I also do think I'm probably a very self-conscious and meta type of person. So um, it doesn't really answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, I think that, that, that sense of you observing yourself uh, in what ought to be, and mm. no doubt was, an emotional mm. situation, that sounds true to me. I was thinking, uh, one of the things I bumped into recently by you, which I didn't know about, but I feel I ought to have known about it, was a sort of travel piece about Iceland. Oh, yeah. And you go to the whale station. Mm, I've see, been there. Which see is a whale being flensed. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and you talk there about, you sort of make it clear what's happening to mm. the poor bloody whale. Mm. And, and does a nice Icelandic fisherman take you down or yeah. someone who works there? Yeah, it's incredibly sort of soft, puffy hands, this farmer. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the thing you remember emotionally is that you didn't feel anything. Mm. No, didn't, didn't why, feel a thing. Why do you think that was? Because I mean, is you that the same as standing on the top of the steps? Yeah. Well, I just think it's that often you feel, you know, it's, it's unpredictable when you're going to feel the feelings, you know, and often you don't feel them in the moment that you think you're going to. And almost in a way, knowing that this is a moment where you think you're going to feel that feeling can almost, for me at least, mean that you're not going to because then you kind of, you know, I don't know, there's just expectation around it. Or, um, But, yeah, I mean, I find that often emotion emotion just comes out of left field. It's not usually in centre field. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean it, <coughs> excuse me, it fits with that, that whole Icelandic thing. Mm. I mean, they're, a, they're a fantastically reserved and mm. sort of professionally self-deprecating mm. or unrevealing, mm. unself-revelating yeah. sort of race. I, I, I read recently uh, a travel book by Sarah Moss, the novelist, you know, uh, about spending a year in Iceland, and she gets quite obsessed with Icelandic drivers and mm. their behaviour. Uh, and that apparently they don't signal. Mm. Uh, and I think an Icelandic friend of hers explained it to her as being that Icelandic men don't see why anyone else should know where they're going. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. sort of, you know, makes a strange kind of sense. Yeah, so you'd fit right in there. No wonder you did so much um, Icelandic work yourself. <laughs> uh, you could say that, yeah. Do you, do you think that deadpan, detached thing is also there in the poems? I mean, it seems to me the yeah. poems are often about oh, exhausting, terrifying, 
you mm. know, discombobulating things. Mm. And yet that voice, mm. that steady voice in the poems, the lines all seem to be of the same length, calm stanzas. Mm. Uh, is that something, I mean, you're, you're sort of aware of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I think it's quite a New Zealand thing as well, that mm. kind of, um, I mean, I've got, I guess I've got more of an awareness of that now that I've had the book published in Canada and I've seen the sort of commentary from um, Canada and the, and the US on, on the poems and that, that, that maybe that's a cultural thing as well, a kind of understatement. Right. Um, but I also think, you know, for me that's a coping mechanism in life as well as in my poetry is to, is to remain calm. <laughs> Mm. And so, and and to be funny, you know. And yeah. so, and so at those moments of sort of tension or despair or anger or fear, you know, all of those, all of the, all of the id type emotions. I, I suppose that's the, the kind of, you know, the, not in a bad way, but the ego in a sort of Jungian sense. That's the kind of way of keeping keeping control and keeping, yeah, yeah. Um, keeping stability. Yeah. 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 Uh, can we, can we maybe go to the diary <laughs> and find out if there's any control there? I've, yeah. I've never heard the readings from this famous diary, but everyone I've met who's been to them are just going, oh my God, Kate can diary. <laughs> yeah, there's this thing called Bad Diary Salon um, where people read from their, from their diaries and that's where I've read, read from it a few, few times. So, yeah, this is um, January 1. Fire on beach. Wine, Malibu, and bourbon and gin. Cameron, CBCBCB. Home at 12.40am after an eventful night. Welcome, 1986. <laughs> glad, 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 glad Cameron and Rick came to our fire, apart from otherwise. Cameron returns on Friday. Too long, too long, too long. Tanya lost weight, heaps of weight. She's not back yet. Cameron, 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 times 10,000. What a nice name. <laughs> now, at some point in sort of March of this diary, or, 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 I start finishing every entry, leather and chains, Kate. So just for context, you'll know, okay. February 18. No school because of teacher's strike. Spent day at home and talked to Emma a lot. Cameron came round around 4.15. We talked about music, sex, virginity, table tennis, the thrill of the chase, people, Cameron, me, carpet, Paul Weller, Hazy, Catherine, Scott, America, moods, Mike, Sadness, money, South Africa, being happy, food, my parents, when Cameron fell out of the boat, Scotland, ferrets, blue hair, clothes, life, the universe, everything, leather, chains, and last but not least, love. <laughs> November 24, wow, bad karma. First day back at your militaristic one-hour brain shift learning institution and I can already feel the heaviness closing in. Got stoned tonight on a groovy thumb imitation of a joint. Watched the Corsican brothers, Cheech and Chong, which was a definitely main trip into total mind-blowing humour. 
ate blue vein cheese and chocolate biscuits, which was a real culture shock for the less alert of my taste buds. <laughs> Come join my party. Don't wait out in the cold. Leather and chains. Kate. <laughs> and then I'll just, uh, I'll just round out the year since we started on the first. I'll just round out the year December 31st. Wow! Happy anniversary and all that. Cam and me up at Richard's fire, role reversal. No Tanya, only change. Amazing fun, but no point going into detail, as it was all the same as most other nights. And there have been many in 1986. <laughs> Looking back over the year as I wrote it is incredibly funny. My incredible infatuation with Cameron, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. It's all there and it's all happened. Leather and chains. Treat me rough, 86. Kate. <laughs> what happened to Cameron? Well, speaking of, you know, consider privacy considerations and things, I often think that about doing a project with the diary is, you know, fuck knows where Cameron is now. I'm pretty safe to say I don't think he's a big reader, so I'm, I'm probably, <laughs> probably quite safe there, but, yeah. yeah. I should have said a reader, I married him, shouldn't I? That would have been. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, this is not relevant to poetry, but the first time... I sort of remember you in the sort of visual landscape in Wellington was you used to slope up and down Kelvin Parade mm. in your blue jeans and boots and uh, and you were you were a wonderful student because you didn't basically give a stuff or you, or you pretended you didn't give <laughs> yeah. a stuff. And that took a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> what any of the staff thought of you mm. and you weren't going to be sold any kind of, you know, rubbish and, and so on. And, and, and there was a dog mm -hmm. with you. Uh, and I remember that because you mentioned in a note to me that you've got another dog. Mm. Have you always had dogs? or is, is it No, I've only just got a dog in the last six months and I hadn't had a dog since the dog I had in my 20s, Jade. But funnily uh -huh. enough, my an early memory of you before... I'd never had you as a tutor, I'd only had you as a lecturer. And it was a big lecture, you know, I think it would have been a first-year English mm. lecture or something. And I remember crossing Kelvin Parade and taking my dog for a walk down the Botanic Gardens and you said to me on the crossing, I just, we'd just got our marks for, uh, it must have been American literature, and I'd gone down and you had to go and look on the piece of paper to get your mark, and I think I'd gotten A+. Plus. And I was, you know, really excited. And you said, oh, congratulations on your mark as we were sort of crossing on the crossing. And I was like, oh. And then I had to just persist and go and have my walk, even though I just wanted to go straight home and ring mum and go, oh, Bill Manhai knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even the mark or the congratulations. It was the sense that in this huge university class, you know, because I naively thought, looking back on it now, of course, there's only a handful of students who are actually really that interested in what they're doing, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know who they are, but, you yeah. know, yeah. yeah. I met a, an ex-student of mine here the other night, Simon Wilson, you know, who writes for The Herald, mm -hmm. and he said, uh, oh, I always feel embarrassed when I see you because I, I just remember this terrible, terrible thing about <laughs> the Middle English exam. <laughs> and I, you don't what? remember it? <laughs> uh, uh, and, and I said, remind me. And he said, 
well, he said, I, I, I was talking to you somewhere at half past one, uh, and I said, well, I'd better go off uh, to sit the Middle English exam, and you said to me, you'll find that a bit difficult, it happened this morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he did all right for himself without his Middle English, didn't he? he did, yeah. <laughs> so he's been living with the pain of that for years. I think we should go very quickly to some questions, because we have time for questions, and I think you need to approach the microphone uh, if you have one. There's one down here and one down here, and I should have given you a bit of a warning, really. <laughs> oh, sorry, Kira. Uh, my name is Clara. Um, I'm intrigued uh, about, like, if you could say three things for those who want to write, who have this anger, who has this pain. What would you do while we guide your way? Um, well, I think I was quoted a little while ago um, as saying, if you want to write poetry, you need to read poetry. If you only want to write poetry and not read poetry, you're not a poet, you're just a bit of a dick. <laughs> um, so that would be my first, my first, yeah, it's just got to read, just, you know, you, you, it all starts with reading. You know, any kind of creative um, endeavour, I think, starts with being a consumer and an audience member of that thing. And then, um, you know, it might not be Wednesday mornings, but you've got to carve out time. You know, if everything else in your life is, is eating away at your time, so it's up to you if you want to create. You have to carve out the time and force that, force that, um, force that back. Um, I'm not sure if I've got a, a third one, but maybe it's um, I read everything aloud, whether it's the memoir or um, or my poetry. I feel like that's how you develop a sense of um, both a sense of the rhythm of what you're writing, but also it helps you experience it as an audience of your own work as well as the person who created it. So, yeah, it's going to be my top three. <laughs> Kia Kate. I went to a writing course of yours in Gisborne in 2002 oh, or something, awesome. so I've been a groupie for a while. <laughs> Don't expect you to remember me, but... Um, I can't see you anyway, No, so. no, there you go, it's easy, yeah, yeah, well, you won't notice, you know, it's been a little bit of change since then. Um, but I was just interested in your comment about confidentiality and um, writing about people before they die, because I've got mm. a poem called Poem I Can't Read Till My Father Dies, mm. and uh, it's not very nice about him. Mm. Um, but I just wondered uh, what sort of... In all seriousness, what's been your experience with that? Like, are there are there works you sort of hold back until mm. the person's, you know, no longer around? Or, mm. yeah, just wondering. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting one. I, I, you know, I will give a serious answer, but my joke answer is that I always, you know, when I very first started publishing, Mum would always say, oh, you know, I hope you're not writing any poems about me. I'd say, no, only that one. My mother fucked me up and I never forgave her. Um, <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a judgment call for everyone in their own life and their own situation. You know, I think it's very um, hard to to judge, and, and and people sometimes are critical of, of people who publish things about people who are who are alive. And there's been a lot of that conversation lately around the Charlotte Grimshaw book, hasn't there? Um, I don't know. I think that. Um, what you're doing when you publish a work that mentions someone is going to have an emotional impact on them and on you, and only you as the people who are in that emotional zone 
can be the ones who judge it. Um, but I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to hold back on those things. And the thing personally that's always surprised me about writing about things, um, especially, you know, Bill was saying about my parents' divorce, you know, when my father father left. And, and you know, I've written about, I've, I have written about that in, in different ways and also just written about, you know, things that I thought would be upsetting for my for my parents. And mum and I are very close, so I've always sort of felt that I, you know, would know how she would respond to something. But with dad, it's always been a little bit more of a mystery. And I've always been actually really surprised. I remember showing him something that I thought he would find very difficult to read. And, and I sort of said to him, oh, you know, did you find that, was that weird for you? And he sort of said, but it's fucking great piece of writing. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it's interesting to me that he responded that way rather than sort of, rather than f feeling it as painful. And I'm not sure um, if he's in denial or I am or that's just a family trait. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the end of that answer. When you're writing prose, do you still warm up by reading some first? Mm, interesting question. No, I don't. I, I didn't know. When I went to France, I'd never written a prose before, so I didn't really know what my process was going to be. And so I decided my process was going to be that I'd have a theme that I wanted to write about and, you know, or time in my life for a particular thing like, like smoking. And I would just sit down and for my designated writing time, I would just write everything I could on that theme and I guess apropos of the writing advice one of the things I always do is like I feel it's like a um, Eurydice type situation and kind of don't look back so I write and I don't look back and I don't edit I just write for me the writing process is just write 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 and once I've exhausted everything that I think is that I've got then I go back and reread and edit because I find that the editing brain is a different kind of brain. So I might write, when I'm doing the memoir, I might write for a week um, just writing and not looking back on it, not editing it. And then when I feel I've totally purged everything that's in there, then I'll go back and start, start shaping it. We just have a couple of minutes left mm. anyway. So I thought this might be the time for you to... Uh, Give us a farewell reading. But can I just ask about that diary? Did you buy that diary? The I don't object? know. I don't Where know where the diary came a, from. It's got gold paint on the Yeah, yeah. And it's got stamped it's got stamped personal, personal, personal around it with stamps that I must have taken from Dad's office and you know, it's got stamped personal, personal, personal and then a few Amnesty International stickers. Uh, so yeah, but it's it's in it's, it's such a precious tanga, like you, know. you know. I can't so. believe I've I can't believe I've still got it. And I never kept a diary in my life, apart from that one year, so. Um, so the only thing I want to say about this poem is um, that I'm, there's a couple of lines in it that are quoted from um, Ian Weddy, one from Ian Weddy and one from Lawrence Ferlinghetti, both in relation to, to lighthouses. Um, and this is a poem I wrote um, last year during, during lockdown. Kryptonite. I can never remember is it the source of his power, or the one thing that can kill Superman? We know he's sad, of course, his mother, a distant planet, and when he moves, he drags a gleaming road behind. Like all of us, without his glasses, 
his face feels very open. You could pick up any visible knife and, well, you know. A new moon the size of a car has been discovered orbiting the Earth. For some reason, like in a film, the interior light is on, so the inside is warm and yellow. The source of your power and your nemesis are going to be the same thing, right? You don't have to pay someone to tell you that. Pay someone to say, I'm just going to summarise what you've told me in my own words, as if words. They're just a kind of light bulb, the old kind that breaks easily, or the new indestructible, safe, expensive ones that suck the life out of everything. I'm gathering fragments of my humanity like dull crystals and throwing them into the sea when behind a concrete wall I see a black dog swimming in pursuit. I personally walked away from hope some years ago. It was destroying me, like being rolled over by a giant apple. And now I begin to revolve like a beacon in the midst of dangers as a lighthouse moves its megaphone over the sea. I cover more and more of my body until only the front of my face is visible, like I'm being born. And I go to the source of my power, the headland stripped of its trees, the damaged, unsustainable coast, and my memories. I shuffle that deck of failures for a while. Early in the season, this fall, I found a kingfisher on the stairs. Our home, a glowing miracle, they throw themselves against with such energy. This shining world, their kryptonite. Aha, lovely. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just say quickly before you go, thank you for coming. Uh, if, if you want Kate to sign a book, she'll be at the table out there pen in hand. Uh, otherwise, let me just say thank you to Kate for a great hour. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.